Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. For as long as I can remember, the mantra has gone like this. A business's purpose has been to make money for its shareholders. But just a few weeks ago, one of the largest U.S. business lobbies, headed by none other than J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon himself, well, they discarded that idea. Instead, they said a business was meant to consider the well-being of its employees, of its customers, of its community, alongside the pursuit of profits. Let's talk about that new mission statement from the Business Roundtable today, sparking a debate about the purpose of a corporation and why maximizing shareholder returns is no longer the main goal. The nearly 200 CEOs that make up the Business Roundtable are redefining corporate responsibility. Earlier this week, the BRT released a new statement. Hello and welcome to Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. On this episode, we're getting a little philosophical. That is about the role of the American corporation. How the idea of returning profits to shareholders came to be, why the biggest names in U.S. business say now is time for a change, and whether it can really be done. So to understand its origins, you have to go back sort of 100 years, 50 years, and 20 years. Andrew Edgecliffe-Johnson is the FT's U.S. business editor, and around our newsroom, we tend to call him Edge. So 100 years ago, Henry Ford was still around, still owned most of his eponymous motor company. But there were two brothers, John and Horace Dodge, who owned 10%. And when Henry Ford decided one year, about 1916, to divert a lot of the money that he'd been paying out in dividends to expanding Ford's business and lowering its prices, the brothers sued him. And Ford was arguing that the company had paid out actually too much money to shareholders and it had an obligation to benefit the public and the firm's workers and its customers. But ultimately, the court sided with the Dodge brothers, saying that a business corporation is organized and carried on primarily for the profit of the stockholders. And therefore, directors could not conduct its business for the primary purpose of benefiting others. So that became something of a test case that's still cited in many law schools as establishing this notion that the board has a fiduciary duty only to its shareholders. This notion of shareholder primacy and almost the language of it really only took off about 50 years later. And that happened with a newspaper article uh, by the Nobel-winning economist Milton Friedman, who wrote in the New York Times in 1970, an essay which he entitled, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits. And this was in the context of, of price controls um, in the Nixon era and things like that, and great sort of concern about the state of the free market. And he said that for a company to pursue anything other than legal shareholder returns would be pure and unadulterated socialism. Now, that idea took a little while to take off, but in the free market ideology of the Reagan-Thatcher era, it really started to take over corporate America. And that gets us to our third milestone, 
for shareholder primacy, which was 1997, when you get the Business Roundtable, which is effectively the voice of big business in Washington alongside the Chamber of Commerce, setting out its views on the purpose of the corporation. And in their statement that year, they wrote, the paramount duty of management and of boards of directors is to the corporation's stockholders. And without that shareholder focus, they argued, boards would have no way of resolving conflicts between shareholders' interests and those of other stakeholders, like employees, customers, and suppliers. And this has more or less been widely accepted as the sort of purpose of business, hasn't it? I mean, at least in the U.S., Edge, when did this idea start to get some pushback? I think it's fair to say that shareholder primacy became the orthodoxy. But even in the 1990s, when the Business Roundtable was writing this down, businesses were already paying more attention to the idea that they had some sort of responsibilities beyond their obligations to shareholders. So yeah, we were calling it at the time corporate social responsibility. You can go back and look at you know, Financial Times special reports from 1993 on this subject. And since then, we've seen many different flavors of the same idea, like sustainable business and the much more recent ESG focus among investors on the environment, society, and governance. What's ESG? I hate the rudimentary question, but I think it's important <laughs> to how you define it. What does it? ESG stand for? Environmental, social, and governance. But by 2009, we had the global financial crisis, and that really did shake people's faith in corporate capitalism. That year, we had an interview with Jack Welch, famously the former G CEO, whose name was almost shorthand for hitting quarterly profit targets. He told the FT in 2009 that shareholder value was the dumbest idea in the world, and that uh, it, you know, shareholder value was something that was a result, not a strategy. Investors would get their returns anyway if a company was focusing properly on its employees, its customers, and its products. financial crisis you know, didn't just shake people's confidence in, in business and it, it started a very big debate about the role of, of capitalism even you know 10 years ago that faded somewhat but it left behind this focus on the glaring inequality in developed economies and obviously unleashed populist political forces on both the left and the right which we're which we're living through now so you throw in on top of that the demographic shift of a generation of millennials who are bringing their environmental concerns to work you know to their buying decisions and to their behavior as investors as well as they get wealthier and the pressure for change has been building and that is if wall street does not end its greed we will end it for them so you know how american economy worked for decades shoot for centuries and that was that the biggest companies in this country had multiple responsibilities, responsibility to their shareholders, to their employees, to their customers, and to the communities that they were involved in. And it worked. You know, just as there's all of this fear-mongering that government is going to take over every corporation and government is going to take over every business or every form of production, um, we should be scared right now because corporations have taken over our government. And so that brings us to the latest item in this evolution of how we've been thinking about the role of business, but the purpose of the corporation. And that is this latest statement out of the Business Roundtable. What did they say? Well, they issued an update to the language that they've uh, held on to for more than 20 years now. Let's talk about that new mission statement from the Business Roundtable today, sparking a debate about the purpose of a corporation and why maximizing shareholder returns is no longer the main goal in which they essentially relegated the shareholders to the same 
sort of status as various other groups of, of stakeholders, employees, customers, suppliers, and the broader communities in which companies operate, including including the, the planet, the environment. Remember every conversation that you, anytime you would ask a CEO about, hey, why'd you do this deal? Hey, why are you doing that? Why are you doing this? Well, because it's in the best interest of, of shareholders. Now... The Business Roundtable is chaired at the moment by Jamie Dimon, who's the chairman of CEO J.P. Morgan Chase. And in his last letter to shareholders, he became another of the CEOs to voice concern about the state of capitalism, writing that the system was leaving people behind and business couldn't keep driving by society's problems. Before that, some months before that, we now discover he decided to hold a dinner with a couple of people who'd written critical pieces about the Business Roundtable and its shareholder primacy stance. And it sounds as though this was this started as a slightly frosty setup. But essentially, he decided on the back of that discussion, it was time to review the language in that statement. He tasked Alex Gorski, the CEO of Johnson & Johnson, which has also been in the news recently over, its, uh, over the opioid crisis, uh, but a company with a 50-year-old credo of um, giving back to society, to start writing this new statement of purpose. And one of the interesting things that the BRT has now said, the Business Roundtable has now said, is that many of its members were telling them that they felt they'd already moved on. The old language no longer reflected the way that they were running their businesses with multiple stakeholders in mind. So it got to a point where I think the Business Roundtable felt that the balance of risks uh, was in favor of, of changing. Can I ask a question that might sound a little dim? A business that is supposedly considering or, or being of service to all of its stakeholders, how does that look different in practice or how does that differ from one that is supposedly focused on maximizing shareholder return? I guess I'm wondering, is it really any different or is this perhaps a little bit of window dressing to make these respective stakeholders feel uh, a bit better? That is actually a very good question because there's an enormous amount of debate about what this means. And one of the dangers and one of the difficulties of getting into this whole discussion about a company's purpose is that's terribly woolly and different companies are going to define it very differently. So if you are a healthcare company, your purpose is probably uh, making sick people less sick. If you are a financial services company, it's going to be a very different social purpose that you see yourself serving. So there's no real one-size-fits-all answer to that. I think if I were to summarize it, it is about sustainability. It's about that idea that you are paying your employees a living wage, uh, where you know, going back to Henry Ford, they can actually afford the products that you're selling. You are treating your suppliers fairly, and you are scrutinizing your supply chain to make sure that it doesn't have modern slavery you know, hidden in the, in the supply chain, that it's not um, abusing the people who are manufacturing your products and things like that. And increasingly, it's about your impact on the planet. And uh, is this company sort of raiding the assets on which, the raw materials on which it depends, or is it actually making some contribution to the, the health of the planet? So, but frankly, this is a very active debate. And one of the the things that's really come out of this business around table uh, statement and change in the, the, the language about the purpose of the corporation is that increasingly CEOs think that serving these other communities, serving these other stakeholders is actually the best guarantee of longer term sustainable profits for their shareholders. So increasingly they see no trade-off. I think where that gets tested is where 
companies find themselves with a short-termist activist shareholder or a hedge fund on the register who's pushing to get immediate returns, you know, something that pays back within the next quarter, within the next year, and is saying, don't put the money, you know, put money to work that's only going to pay back in three to five years' time, hand it back to us in a special dividend or a buyback because we don't trust you to invest it well. So you mentioned activist investors, but I'm also curious about other retail investors, the everyday investor, someone who's got a 401k and they're looking to retire, looking to keep a pretty specific return on their investment. If we just step into their shoes for a minute, how are some of these longer term, perhaps more idealistic ideas going to be received by someone in that position? And I guess then how are CEOs going to respond? We'll only really know that when we see what changes in substantive terms. So what the Business Roundtable has not said, and what, frankly, uh, it, this, this will be down to its members to, to show us, is how much does this change the decisions boards of make, directors make about uh, their employees' pay, their CEOs' pay, uh, how much they pay their suppliers, how they reduce their carbon footprint, whether they still keep up the buyback programs uh, to the extent they have before. So we're now moving to the kind of show me stage of this, where having articulated this very, this kind of lofty, rather philosophical change at the top, it's now going to be down to individual companies to show that there is a practical result from that. And that gets you into a whole interesting subplot about how on earth do you measure um, corporate virtue. So we know how to measure profit. You know, the bottom line of a P&L account is pretty well established. But actually, 50 years ago, it wasn't that well established. There were all sorts of different accounting metrics. And we went through a process to standardize accounting in the U.S. and internationally. You know, what you now hear when you go and talk to the accounting geeks is actually we're, we're at the beginning of another similar process where companies and their advisors having to work on what the new metrics will be to show what these ESG virtues mean in practice. What are some of the other arguments that the skeptics or the downright opponents of this idea, what do they What do they have to say? I think it falls into various buckets. You have the group that dismisses this as CEOs trying to pander to politicians, you know, that they see Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and AOC coming and that they feel they have to to throw something in their direction, to, to throw them off the scent. Um, if that's the case, it hasn't really worked. You know, we've had statements from Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders saying uh, they don't trust this, they don't find this credible. You have a group, including Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who say, look, this is coming from CEOs. Why should we find them credible? These are the people who are still buying back their shares by the billions. They're still finding loopholes to cut their tax bills. They're still lobbying for deregulation. They're still earning, on average, 254 times as much as their average worker, which has gone up from about 30 times 40 years ago. You have the investor community, which worries that accountability to everyone means being accountable to no one. And then you have a more sort of philosophical debate about whether this is really properly business's role. Um, is this really the role of unelected CEOs or isn't this all government's role? You know, Shouldn't society decide what its priorities are at the ballot box rather than uh, by how they buy and sell shares? Yeah, if I were to try and wrap it all up, I would say... You know, there's very little doubt that this is a symbolically important moment 
in the debate about the purpose of business and the role of capitalism in society. Uh, what we're going to see over the coming years is whether it's also a substantive change. You know, one of the pieces that I read in reaction or, or in response to this move from the Business Roundtable, it was this idea that, you know, not that long ago, Amazon had been sort of challenging other retailers, other e-commerce platforms like their own to uh, to pay workers a $15 an hour minimum wage to sort of meet them on that front. But then a lot of people, politicians and other retailers included, said, well, why doesn't Amazon just pay, you know, how about Amazon pays its fair share of taxes, which is a, a point of contention for the e-commerce giant here in the U.S. So it, it just makes me think it's going to be incredibly interesting to see how they prioritize stakeholders and which stakeholder ultimately wins out. Yeah, I think companies are, many companies are genuinely struggling to know uh, which stakeholders they should put first. But I think that example you gave about whether Amazon should be um, can be taken seriously when it tries to lobby for its industry to pay better minim- minimum wages when it's also paying very little in tax is a good one because it shows the level of skepticism that companies have to get over. Given all that society has seen from business, particularly since the financial crisis, there is a huge amount of work to do for CEOs to be taken seriously in this debate. One of the most interesting and surprising things we've seen since the financial crisis is that actually, after taking a huge dive, confidence in business has risen. You know, there is more and more faith in the idea that CEOs can be social actors, that businesses can start to work on some of the great issues of society, from inequality to the environment. But there is still that legacy of distrust, and CEOs have only, in a way, earned that relative improvement in their trust levels because trust in government has fallen uh, so far in that intervening period. And I think the other point that I'd overlay on this is that we've seen this shift to a broader idea about serving other stakeholders in a rising market. And it's one thing to say, you know, we can put shareholders second or on a par with our employees when the markets are riding high, corporate profits are near record levels, you've uh, been able to afford enormous buybacks for several years now. If we do see a major turn in the markets, it'll be very, very interesting to see whether this mantra survives, whether people go back to more short-termist, more twitchy, more shareholder-focused set of priorities. Edge, as business editor, you've told me that you're sort of you know, the best way to describe your beat is that you're trying to get a sense of the mood of U.S. business. What's going on in the C-suite? After all your reporting on everything we've discussed today, what is the mood? What is the sense? I think what strikes me most about this story is that businesses, having been deeply uncomfortable about the idea that they have a political role, are now getting more comfortable with the idea they can be social actors. You know, many have been dragged into this, kicking and screaming by their own employees, their own consumers, their supply chains, their industry bodies and, and politicians. But we are seeing this quite profound shift, I think, at a period where trust in government is low, where CEOs feel they have more license to weigh in on these very, very big issues, but often because they feel that if they don't 
set out, if they don't articulate a vision of business which they can live with, then something much darker could come their way. We've had, for example, Ray Dalio talking about essentially the risk of revolution, you know, the idea that we can solve this together or we can solve this at odds with each other in a very ugly way. So there is a sense that many CEOs see the pitchforks just over the horizon and that some of their actions and some of these changes we're seeing now, some of their contributions to this debate about business, about capitalism, are defensive. You can read more on the mood from the business world all at FT.com. And if you want to more closely follow the sustainable investing debate, subscribe to our Moral Money newsletter. Just go to FT.com forward slash Moral Money. And I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. You can email me at BehindTheMoney at FT.com and let me know if there's a story you'd like us to cover on a future episode. Again, you can email me at BehindTheMoney at FT.com. Thanks to Laura Sim and to Mark Filipino for help producing this episode. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>